If we don't read the Old Testament, we won't know how we got here. We won't know who we are. We'll start filling in the blanks with our own ideas, constantly reinventing ourselves, living in a state of spiritual amnesia. But we don't have to live like this. We can allow the Lord to fill in the blanks with his word. Hi, I'm Charles Morris, and this is The Great Stories Podcast. Today, I'm returning to an interview I did with a world-famous Hebrew scholar, Dr. Bruce Walkey. From his backyard in Seattle, we talked about God's Word, all of it, but especially the Old Testament and how we read it in light of the New Testament. In a moment, you'll hear how the Bible contains our memories, our histories. It even tells us who we are. But there's also a dire warning. If we ignore large sections of God's Word, we can fall into a state of spiritual amnesia. To help stave that off, I'm so happy to return to this 2010 conversation with my friend Bruce, a friend I've had for nearly 40 years, the head of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years. He also served at Westminster, Philadelphia, Regent College in Vancouver, and finally Reformed Seminary in Orlando. Graduating with a PhD from Harvard and a THD from Dallas, they don't come much brighter than this. Now, as you listen, you'll hear that we cut this interview into different segments when it aired in 2010. We use them on different programs through the week, but each segment is so insightful, I know you'll be blessed. So, let's meet Dr. Bruce Walkey. We're joined over the next few days for a few minutes each day with a world-famous Hebrew scholar. His name is Dr. Bruce Walkey. He was the head of Old Testament for many years at Dallas Theological Seminary, later at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, Regent College in Vancouver, and Reformed Seminary in Orlando. Dr. Walkey's going to be talking to us about Old Testament theology and why the Old Testament is important for those of us living in light of the New Testament, followers of Jesus Christ. Bruce Walkey, we've been friends for over 25 years. Let me just start out by asking you the question, which I asked you a few months ago in your backyard in Seattle. Why read the Bible and study it all the way through? Part of the answer to that is that our identity is tied up with memory. That if I suffered amnesia, had no memory, I would not know whether I was married whether they had children, I would have lost my identity, and I would say, I'm lost. I don't know who I am. I need a memory. The same thing's true of the church, that without a memory, we lose our identity. We don't know who we are. Hmm. And the Old Testament gives the church its historic memory, so they understand who they are. Biblical theology can be likened to uh, building a bridge. That is, as a French saying puts it, the more it changes, the more it becomes what it was. Mm. So when they built the Rainbow Bridge across the Niagara Gorge, they began with a kite flew the kite over the gorge, began sending weights up, and brought the kite down on the other side of the gorge. They replaced the kite string with rope, 
eventually with Goethe's. And the more it changed, the more it became what it was. Mm. Mm. Old Testament theology gives us that history, that memory, so we know how the New Testament took its final shape. But we understand who we are as Christians. All Christians of all stripes believe that in some way God spoke through the Bible, but they don't agree to what extent or how or how we relate to that word. So to help my students, I say that the liberal stands above God's word. That's the crucial word, above. Because the liberal has certain canons that are more fundamental to him than that this is a revelation from God. He is persuaded of historical criticism. That is, nothing happened in the past that doesn't happen in the present. Everything can be explained naturalistically. Everything is coherent whole. So every effect has a cause naturalistically and God never intervenes. And a basic skepticism that this is an ancient document and you treat it no differently than a Greek myth. Mm -hmm. So you have, these are his, his ideas and he approaches the Bible with that canon above God's word. Mm -hmm. And whatever doesn't fit his canon, he rejects. Throws out. So he rejects the resurrection, he rejects the virgin birth, he rejects the ascension, he rejects everything that goes against that canon of what we call historical criticism. Another approach is that of the neo-Orthodox. And for them, the Bible becomes God's word. It is not necessarily God's word, but as Barth put it, the Bible read, the Bible preached, the Bible the word of God. So that as it's preached and it reaches your heart, at that point, it becomes the Word of God. So it develops into that then. But That's right. So they way. stand before the Bible, mm-hmm. hoping to hear a Word of God from the Bible. Mm-hmm. But it is not really the Word of God until you hear it as the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And many of them are Christians because they have heard it as the Word of God. Mm-hmm. But whatever doesn't ring true to them is not the Word of God. So it still comes back to a basic subjectivism that ultimately, as with the liberal, they are neo-orthodox because it's still humans making a judgment about what is God's Word and what is not God's Word. Then you have confessional groups like the Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox and other groups And they stand alongside, the liberal stands above, the neo-orthodox stands before it. And people who are with their traditions, like the Roman Catholic Church, the interpretation of the church fathers, is more important than the Bible itself. Because they stand alongside the Bible with their traditions. And therefore, the Bible has to fit their tradition. And if they don't know what to do with the Bible, they fall back on their tradition. And that becomes ultimately the authority. The rabbis did the same thing in Judaism. They went with their tradition of the Talmud, of what other rabbis said. 
And it's a danger, even in reform circles or other Protestant groups, of making like the Westminster Confession stand above the Bible. And many preachers are afraid of exegesis because they're sure of the tradition, but they're not sure of a fresh interpretation of the tradition. Hence their anchor becomes That's the traditional anchor. document as That's opposed right. to it the canon It has priority structure. over the Word of God itself because if it doesn't fit, well, we're suspicious mm. of that interpretation. Then the other is the uh, fundamentalist. He stands on the Word of God. By that I mean he has his own canon of inerrancy that the Bible has to measure up to what he thinks is right and wrong. And therefore, anything that doesn't measure up to his standard is an error. So he holds to a kind of inerrancy without realizing that his standard is his own judgment. He has set his own canon about has to speak a certain way about science or history. He already knows how it should speak. And I'm not there. I reverse it. I stand under God's word. I'm constantly learning how it communicates. I don't dictate how it has to communicate. And so I'm learning, mm -hmm. I'm growing, and I would rather so instead of standing above it or before it or alongside of it or upon it, I stand under God's Word <laughs> to learn. Totally confident that this is the Word of God, inerrant as to its source, infallible as to its authority. God told Moses his name, but what did it mean? Let's go to a conversation I had in Seattle recently with Dr. Bruce Walkey. God's name is represented in the Hebrew Bible, from which all of our English translations are based, on what is known as a tetragrammaton. Tetra, Latin for four, grammaton, letters. And these letters are Y-H-W-H. During the intertestamental period, rabbis, for fear of taking God's name to vanity, stopped pronouncing God's full name so they couldn't be guilty of it. And every time they came to the name, the Tetragrammaton, they would say, Lord Adonai, or the name Shema. So we don't really know how the name was pronounced. Traditionally, the vowels of Adonai were used in conjunction with those four letters. And Y comes over into German as a J, and hence into English, and it comes over as Jehovah, which is a conflation of both the written and oral traditions. Modern scholarship, from our knowledge of the Semitic languages, believe it was pronounced Yahweh. That's uncertain, but most probable. My problem with that is it means nothing to me when the name was intended to be very meaningful. When Moses is called upon to deliver the people, he needs assurance that God is with him. And he says, they're going to ask, what is your name? In the sense of not what is your name, they knew that. They, he doesn't say, me, Shimcha. Hebrew, if you, I want to know your name, Charles, I'd say, me, Shimcha. Who is your name? If I said, Ma Shimcha, I would mean, what's the meaning of your name? And that's the question they're asking. What does this mean? Because we are slaves in Egypt. 
So what's the significance of all this? And God answers, Ahya, 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 which means I am who I am. And the third person that comes over as Yahweh, which is he is. Well, to me, I am is meaningful. I am who I am. For that is entails that God is eternal. I am. And Jesus says that. He identifies himself when he says, before Abraham was, I am. They immediately saw that was blasphemy, and they sought to put him to death for blasphemy, because he identified himself as the eternal I am. The ultimate reality of the universe is I am. He's before everything. And his attributes, both communicable and incommunicable, incommunicable being his everlastingness, his omnipotence, all-powerful, omniscience, all-knowing, and his communicable attributes are all summed up in this word, I am, and I am the eternal one. That is the ultimate reality, what God is. Everything else is a shadow fading away. It's all ephemeral, vapid, transitory. Only God is eternal. And our faith in that God is what was before and after and is, that God always will be. And he says, I am who I am. That is to say, you cannot liken me to anyone or anything. I'm not like the sun. I'm not like another human being. I am who I am. And I have to disclose to you who I am. And when he discloses himself, he reveals himself. He shows himself as a God of love and grace, but more than that, a God of justice. I will in no wise clear the guilty. He says, when Moses says, show me your glory, he says, I'm a God of love, I'm a God of grace, of mercy, patience, hesed, and you can count on it, but in no wise clearing the guilty. That is, whoever doesn't accept my grace is still in their sin. Who doesn't accept Christ and his sacrifice is still in their sins. What's missing in the church today is we're preaching a half-truth, which is almost a non-truth, like in the, the book The Shack. All you're hearing about is a God of love, never a God of anger, never a God of justice. This is not God. I am who I am, and it's our responsibility to communicate the fullness of who God is as he revealed himself. And that's why I use that gift for the book of Deuteronomy. Because the book of Deuteronomy is the most extensive book in the revelation of who God is. All of his incommunicable and communicable attributes are on display in the book of Deuteronomy. And that's the gift. I am who I am, and we know him. And Frankly, it bothered me for a while that God's name would be forgotten, how to pronounce it. But by pronouncing it Lord, they used to pray in the name of I am. Today we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happened is, in the progress of Revelation, in the first talk we had together, I likened theology, biblical theology, to a, the more changes, to, to a bridge, the more it changes, the more becomes what it was. And in the progress of Revelation, it becomes clear that God is a triunity, and he wants to be known today by his Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. We preach in his name. That's how God wants to be known. But if he went directly from Yahweh or whatever to Jesus, it would be a very difficult for the people of God. But they were already saying, Lord, 
and it was a smooth transition from praying to the Lord to praying to the Lord Jesus Christ. I see it as all part of God's providence. Like in, in, in Romans, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, and he means Jesus, that is the Tetragrammaton in Joel. I asked Hebrew scholar Dr. Bruce Walkey to talk with us about the strength of the Lord and to explain this reference to a horn. She begins with, Lord, you are the horn of my salvation, which the horn symbolizes strength. And then she develops, you are the true strength. And what desperate people do, self-centered people do, they depend upon themselves and they're gonna be broken. That's false strength. And she ends as she began, as often poetry does, with exalt the horn of your anointed. And it's an amazing thing because there was no king yet, and yet she's praying for a king. And she wants a king who has true strength. And her son is gonna become the king maker, Samuel. And he makes two kings. One king, false strength, Saul. The other king, true strength, David. Saul has all the ability He's head and shoulders above everybody else. He comes from a wealthy home. That's the point of this going after his father's donkeys. It was a symbol, 30 donkeys, the symbol of status, wealth, and strength. Uh, he had tremendous military gift. By contrast, David is just the shepherd boy, and he doesn't have the army. He doesn't have the wealth and background, but his true strength is in the Lord, and you have this clash of Saul, which is fake strength, and David, which is true strength. And David shows true strength right at the first when he goes up against the Goliath, the Philistine warrior who believed in his own strength. And David says, my trust is in the Lord. And David shows true strength when on two occasions he can kill Saul. He has all the advantage. The first when Saul is in a cave relieving himself. And David steals up on him and can kill him, but he doesn't do it. He just cuts off the hem of the garment, and then his heart smites him. I defied the king, and that was wrong. And then again, he steals into Saul's camp, and he takes his water jug, the symbol of life, and his sword, the symbol of death, in his two hands, and he has Saul's life and death in his hands, symbolically, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he won't do it. And in fact, instead of giving him back the water jug, he gives him back his sword by which he's pursuing him. Amazing strength, and his kingdom prevails. That's true strength, and that's the lesson for us as Christians. Our true strength is in Christ who conquered death by faith. Recently, I asked Dr. Bruce Walkey, an Old Testament scholar, a Hebrew scholar, to explain this Hebrew word, hesed. Briefly speaking, hesed means that people who have a covenant relationship, one of them falls into a situation where he or she cannot help himself or herself. And the other person has the ability to meet that need and steps in to help the helpless. Mm. Hesed is beautifully illustrated in the death of Joseph. And at one point in his life, turned his back on Canaan and his family. You can understand why. But at the end of his life, he now sees his life holistically. 
and he identifies with his family. And he says, I want to be buried, not in Egypt, with all of its splendor. I want to be buried with the simplicity of my father's. Back home. Back home. His problem is, he can't bury himself. And he says to his brothers, this is the Hesed you will show me. Mm. You will bury me with my fathers, what he can't do. This is the Hesed of Ruth. It's not a traditional love story, as many people think. The sublimity of the book is her quality of Hesed. She's married into a family of no winners. Her father-in-law dies, her husband dies, her sister's husband dies. She's bereft, she has nobody. But she will be loyal to her husband, Machlon. Loyal because he cannot have an heir who will carry on his memory. And that was of great value in the Old Testament. They sought a social immortality that the names would not be blotted out. And so she wants to preserve his memory and the memory of her father-in-law. And she loves her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law, when she comes going back to the land, her mother-in-law says, you have shown hesed to me and to the deceased. You've been loyal, but you've gone far enough. And Ruth says, your people, my people. Mm. Your God, my God. And when she comes back, Boaz is also characterized by Hesed. And he's going to be loyal to Ruth because she is that kind of a person, mm. of this kind of loyalty, this kind of kindness, this kind of love, this unselfishness to serve the other person. And so he will be loyal to her. And see, whereas Ruth's sister-in-law, Orpah, had Hesed, but only to a point, when faced with the hard reality that there was no future with Naomi, she turned back to her gods and her father's family. And stayed. family. Never went. Never went. But Ruth went that extra mile. Dr. Bruce Walkey talking about the gift of God as a warrior. There's a change, great changes in the way God handles war. So, for example, in the patriarchs, they never went to war on behalf of the seed, the holy seed of the Holy Land. Sarah and Rebecca could be in a pagan king's harem. The patriarchs never went to fight. They depended upon God. With regard to the land, Abraham will say to Lot, you go to the left, I go to the right, you go to the right, I go to the left. Let there be no strife between us because we're the brothers. So when it came to the promises of God, they never fought. On the other hand, when Lot was captured by the king of Sodom in a just war, Abraham went to war because it wasn't dealing with the promises of God. It was dealing with the justice of God in that case. Now, when you come to the Exodus, you get real war. When it begins, God is the warrior to deliver his people. And he smashes the Egyptian army, that just as they had taken Israel's children, boys, and drowned them in the river, God in justice drowns the picked troops of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And Israel, they're armed for battle, 
at that Red Sea, mm -hmm. but they never lift a sword. That's the paradigm. I'm the warrior. I'm going to deliver you. But when they're out in the wilderness and the uh, Amalekites at Rephidim are going after them and they're going to war with them, something miraculous happens, changes there. Because now war becomes normal. Joshua's in the valley with a sword. And Moses, who had conquered Egypt with his staff, is now on a mountain raising his staff in prayer. And the sword prevails on earth when Moses is praying and they go down in defeat, which is putting the two together that it is through faith. It's not to deny the incarnation, but it's through faith. And they take the land with the sword because the time of grace for the Canaanites had ended. But a major change occurs when God turns against his own people because they're no better than the Canaanites were. And you have that wonderful story of Naaman, the Syrian general, who is converted. But after he's converted, he doesn't become the general of Israel's army. He stays the general of the Syrian army to fight against God's people because he represents true Israel against false Israel. But now a problem arises. Since God was known as a warrior, now that he is defeating his own people, how do we know he's God? And he changes strategy. He now shows it through prophecy. And it's through preaching. And now he's a warrior with the sword of the Word of God and the Spirit. And now we have a different kind of a kingdom. Instead of being a carnal political kingdom, we now have the Word of God forming a new kingdom in the heart of slaying our old selves and putting that to death in order to give life to a new kind of a person in Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Great Stories with Charles Morris. I also want to thank Dr. Bruce Walke for talking with me about the Old Testament from his Seattle backyard back in 2010. He's now 92 years old and still working hard. Now, if you want to hear more content like this, why don't you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts? And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us get the word out by leaving a five-star review. You can also go to haventoday.org to sign up for our weekly email and discover more episodes posted on the blog. And as always, thank you for joining me once again on Great Stories with Charles Morris. Music